Good day. You're tuned into the 55th edition of Free City Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Uh, today is the 17th of August, and it's a pleasure being with you. Um, and uh, today on the uh, podcast, um, I'm going to be featuring an interview from uh, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, uh, I spoke with Jelani Hossein, uh, who works uh, with the Council on American Islamic Relations uh, in Minnesota. Uh, that is an organization that uh, was one of the first to protest uh, the police murder of George Floyd um, in Minneapolis. Um, Jelani has been active for many years in struggles against systemic racism and oppression, and also to draw attention to systemic police violence targeting black people in Minneapolis and Minnesota. Um, The uh, Council on American Islamic Relations in Minneapolis, in Minnesota more generally, uh, represents many different experiences and speaks to many different experiences. But one community that is strongly represented in Minnesota is the Somali community. Um, And there's um, a long uh, and important series of, uh, you know, organizing efforts that have taken place in Minnesota to uh, speak out against systemic racism as it impacts the Somali community. Uh, In the context of the broader systemic racist violence targeting black communities, um, it was really um, such uh, an important and um, meaningful Um, moment to see the Council on American Islamic Relations in Minneapolis step up to organize one of the first street protests and public gatherings to protest the uh, murder of George Floyd. And that was just um, the day after of the killing uh, last summer. Um, So uh, this conversation is looking at uh, what has happened since that point. Um, and the organizing efforts um, around Black Lives Matter, and more broadly, the efforts to sustain uh, the struggle uh, around uh, these uh, very important ongoing uh, fights against systemic racism that, of course, continue in the context of the uh, democratic presidency of Joe Biden. In the conversation, Jelani speaks to the contradictions of the Democratic Party um, that have sort of signaled towards Black Lives Matter. But when we look at concrete policies, there's not many um, concrete long-term shifts in, for example, removing resources from police departments, if we're talking about democratic municipal or state administrations. Um, also, the George Floyd Act, which is mentioned by Jelani in our exchange, ha- has been stalled. So this is addressed also. I won't go into all the details. I was really uh, happy to get the chance to speak with Jelani Hussein from the Council on American Islamic Relations in Minnesota. uh, And here's our conversation. I'm joined by Jelani Hussein, who is the director of the Council on American Islamic Relations in Minnesota. Um, I was able to speak with Jelani about a year ago, um, right after the police murder of George Floyd, uh, care Um, The Council on American Islamic Relations was uh, one of the organizers of the first protests in the Twin Cities. Um, So it's great to see you just a little bit 
uh, more than a year later at Shalani. Um, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Um, so it's been, well, actually much more than a year now um, since the police murder of George Floyd. I found it so moving and important that CARE stepped up in that time. I'm familiar with CARE's work here in, in Canada in struggling against systemic racism and Islamophobia um, on various fronts, and they've done such important work. But um, in Minneapolis, uh, CARE was on the streets. Um, looking back at this year, there must be so much to reflect on, but how has the mobilization been? And, and do you feel like that street mobilization played an important role in, in shaping the public conversation around George Floyd's murder? And I'm asking that because I think maybe often, at least in the mainstream discourse, the importance of street mobilization and community presence on the streets isn't sort of understood as a key part of the political process. No, I think that's a good point. First of all, thank you for having me. And, and um, you know, I, I, it's been a year plus now, and, and I think that year um, seems like um, such a long time ago uh, because of everything that happened. Um, and what I think George Floyd incident did, um, it opened the eyes of so many people um, locally and abroad to police murders. Um, you know, I don't think that we have been silent or unaware of state violence by police, you know, like never before. I mean, people are showing up to scenes. Uh, people are pulling their phones up just at a random police action. Um, more and more white people are starting to believe black people around police violence and police brutality. We're starting to see investigations to previous cases that have long been ignored. Uh, we are seeing that this is not an isolated incident. Uh, so right as George Floyd's trial is going on here in Minnesota, you know, nearly a few miles away, a young man named Dante Wright was killed um, by a white officer who uh, apparently mistaken her uh, taser uh, for um, for her gun uh, or mistaken the, the gun for her taser. And so um, we know that unarmed black men are treated differently, uh, more hostile and more likely to die in police encounters. It's, it's also interesting that during this time when George Floyd was killed, uh, we did see uh, right around Dante Wright who was also killed. We saw a man, a white man who not only threatened cops, but actually literally was harming them with a with a hammer, was able to be apprehended. And here's a teenager who's driving uh, a car with air fresheners dangling from his rear view that was stopped, pulled over, and then ends up being killed because the officer wanted to, you know, uh, was so afraid that, that she wanted to pull her taser within seconds of just interacting with him. Um, and, and even right after George Floyd was killed, not even six months, uh, a Somali young man was killed named Dolal Eid. Um, in fact, this case just became a bit more 
uh, movement on that because the prosecutor who took the case is not going to charge the officers and has not shown the family the videos. Um, and there's a little bit of an uproar on that and hoping to see some change around that. So it's been, it's been, I would say the fundamentally the biggest change that I've noticed is um, society in general has changed. Whether it's a temporary change, whether it's a permanent change, we will, time will tell. Um, uh, I know in the black community, um, you know, it was trauma compounded by trauma, compounded by more trauma, um, you know, and, and there is a reversal to some extent of uh, what's been happening where police are ignoring um, and continuing to do what they have done, actually, which is not solve uh, crimes within the black community. Uh, we have Minnesota right now, uh, uh, as well in the rest of the country, an increased crime rate. Uh, which is, I personally believe, a direct result of the failure of the police. But they're using that as a way to, they're spinning that narrative as a narrative of, no, it's the uprising that is causing. It's the, it's the lower police count that's causing us not to respond. But it's actually a direct punishment to the Black communities across this country who have been vocal and the most vocal and the most um, appropriate to talk about these topics. And we're also noticing that when crimes do happen in neighborhoods or the victims are white and it's, uh, you know, we're seeing immediate results in, in finding and apprehending those individuals. But if you are in the black neighborhood and you get shot or killed or something happens there, the likelihood of your case being set, you know, solved is, is very unlikely. So, and so they're dragging their feet in it intentionally to suffocate the community and, and, and force this idea that the only way to be safe is to have more police. Well, we know the statistics and the data that prior to the killing of George Floyd, crime rates were going up. Prior to the killing of George Floyd, black neighborhoods and black crime were not solved. You know, and, but now the public relations uh, uh, media, I would call the public relations machine of the police departments, wherever they are in the United States, across in Canada, they are trying to win back people by, by literally scaring them and also sharing, you know, the, the police officer who gives the ice cream story, you know, to a kid story. So they're doing both and they're trying to, and even I've noticed it here in Minnesota where, you know, a crime happens and there's like nine press conferences about it where previously one would do it or maybe nothing. It would just be a blimp on the news, but now they're grandstanding on every single crime as if like, Oh, the city has been lost to crime. You know, I lived in Minnesota in the early nineties and in 1995 and 1996, um, those era, you know, there was 187 murders in the city, you know, 187. Um, now we're, slated to have maybe a little under 70 or 60 based on the current trend, you know, and um, that would be still high because I think last year was about 60 or 62 or whatever. But, you know, they're using it like, oh, like, oh my God, we've, you know, we've, the threshold is so high. Um, so that narrative spin um, is in play now. Um, unfortunately, also what we did notice and we have noticed is that uh, Democrats in this country who, um, self-aligned with the black community and and this issue of the killing of George Floyd 
have failed to really pass any meaningful legislation, whether on the federal level um, or at the state level here in Minnesota and even the city level. Um, we know that, um, you know, the George Floyd Act, which is a federal act, has been stalled and has not been passed. Um, in fact, we've had all these measures passed for other communities, uh, for the Asian community after the hate incidents. You know, there was the policies rushed through to help and address that, which is rightfully so. But at the same time, here's an issue that's been sitting. And, and, and in fact, President Biden, of all people, has been one in person who should be righting the wrong that he has caused the Black community and, and in the era of tough on crime that he led. Uh, and here he can't. And it's what's the excuse that Republicans, there's, I mean, they control all three houses of three branches of the United States government. Um, and then in the state of Minnesota, the state that killed George Floyd, um, we passed more policing bills than anything else. We could not pass a single police accountability bills. Uh, and Democrats caved and allowed Republicans to pass a tougher police bills. In fact, you know, the state that killed George Floyd uh, did not have George Floyd's family honored at the Capitol um, when the session was going on. Instead, a police officer who was, um, you know, unfortunately injured at the line of duty was allowed uh, to be um, out of decorum and out of uh, process on the floor of the Senate by the Republicans, uh, while families who have been, who are, you know, their loved ones have been killed by police did not get those honoring, did not get those recognition. Um, and so, and Minnesota is a very considered to be a liberal state, but when it comes to policing, it's not liberal. And I think for many people, um, the, the slow progress to politic, political change has to be a, a realization and awakening to the history of these political parties, both the Democrats and Republicans in the 90s were outdueling each other. Who can be more supportive of policing? Um, the Joe Bidens of the world were talking about how they need tough on crime. And in that race, actually, Republicans lost. It was Democrats who were the most aligned with policing because they favored unionization and support for unions in policing. And that offered more pay, more support. And then when it came to funding law enforcement, you know, Republicans love small governments, so they, they don't want to give all this money to <laughs> departments, right? And police departments uh, eat a huge share of line of, uh, of funding. Uh, but sadly, um, you know, Democrats were the ones that were loved by police because they funded them more. They protected their pension um, and, and uh, they created them loopholes and everything. Um, and Republicans now are carrying that mantle, even though Democrats can't unhinged as they've had long history of relationship with these people and they have long supported them. And so when George Floyd was, was killed and that the world demanded change, the, the slowest to progress has been politics and policies, which is the most effective way to really fundamentally change. However, uh, what fundamentally changes the society, the people around, um, and also even just the industries from corporations to Hollywood to you name it, all of those groups have, have started to create, you know, black content, which is because it's now sellable. It's, it's a thing now. People, is, it's in the back of the grain in the conscience of many people. George Floyd is a synonymous for uh, police violence um, and who will never be forgotten, uh, nor this incident. And through this terrible tragedy, uh, more people hopefully will be saved and America will be better 
for it and the rest of the world around not um, silencing uh, state violence that particularly is occurring on the streets in Minneapolis and across this country. Thank you, uh, Jelani. Um, you bring up like a really important issue that I think is really, it's multi-layered and it's often like difficult to articulate in terms of like the hype politics of the news cycle, which is, you know, CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations has played a role in pushing legislation, not just in the US, but also in Canada, or challenging specific laws and going through the legal processes to basically try to um, unravel the various manifestations of systemic racism in relation to policing, but also more generally in, in, in relation to, you know, government legislation that um, criminalizes uh, racialized communities, particularly uh, Muslim communities. Um, but thinking about that and everything you just talked about regarding the Democratic Party in the United States, I think it's not, you know, only in the US, we see sort of a similar pattern with the Liberal Party in Canada. Um, but there is that process, you know, and I know that you have been both on the streets, but also trying to deal with that type of political process, which, you know, isn't always sexy, you know, it isn't always hype, it's, it's, it's also involves behind the scenes work and negotiating with people that you might not be 100% on board with on a, a variety of things. Um, obviously, the street protest has created a lot of space for, you know, your organization, uh, Council on American Islamic Relations in Minnesota, but many other groups to actually have more space in that sort of process. But I think that often, you know, with all the hashtags and, you know, the very important work that, you know, Gen Z is doing online to address these issues. Um, it's sometimes, yeah, I just, I just was wondering if you could comment on the importance of that sort of like institutional push that is not really covered and there isn't really a clear way to cover it. If, if, if you see what I'm saying. No, absolutely. I think there's two big processes and both are equally important and they're equally connected. And the first one is the one that everybody sees, which is the protest, right? People, people in the streets. And, and um, you know, and this is, this is known. Um, we known that, you know, um, in all history that uh, early response and reaction is high by populace. People will show up at the beginning of the fight. And as the fight continues on, less and less people will show up. But the concept of showing up is critically important. Um, it's perhaps the, you know, the reasoning for the change, the reasoning that right now Derek Chauvin is charged the way he was charged. It was because people actually showed up uh, and protested and demanded that. And uh, it created an entire security apparatus to deal with the state of Minnesota protesting. It, it, we had an entire operation called Operation Safety Net, which you know, we saw it manifest and play out aggressively against protesters um, right after Dante Wright was killed, while George Floyd's trial was going on. And, um, and so protesting and public action and continuous public action by uh, people, uh, no matter where they are, no matter how small it is, no matter how large it is, is extremely impactful. I will share the example of, um, you know, and I know she has a, a lot of privilege, but uh, Greta from uh, uh, Europe there. And, 
you know, her coming on the scene was a simple one person protest at the most important area. And she got few media and there was a liking to her. She had the right, you know, maybe image or something, but she, she played, she played the right play, which is protesting consistent and aggressive protesting can have an impact and a long-term impact. It will move other people as well. The, uh, at the, the, same time, the point of the consistency issue. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But at the same time, you cannot protest aimlessly. You have to purpose, you have to have a purposeful protest. Uh, and this is something we've learned in history, uh, especially in Dr. King and, and the civil rights movement. Uh, they did not protest because they just wanted to protest. They protested with a purpose, a purpose that would move the needle forward. Uh, so we protested here to demand justice, not only inside a courthouse, but also outside the courthouse. We demanded justice to change policies. Um, and we protested also in front of political leaders' homes because in COVID, everybody was hiding behind Zoom. You know, they're hiding behind. They would not interact with the community. They would not answer questions. And so we went to their front lines and that was seen as controversial, but they chose to be political officers. We didn't ask them to, right? They could have had a private life if they wanted to. Nobody goes into somebody's home if you're a private, right? You're a political, you chose the job. You're supposed to be accessible to the entire constituents and we're going to show up to your front door. Um, and that is seen as radical. Uh, you know, seeing this as something crazy, but the reality is that this is this is part of the uh, protests and putting pressure, and and we faced a great deal of opposition, whether we did it in, in the Twin Cities, in, in the urban center, but also in rural areas where we were faced with armed militia um, who were there to threaten us, to intimidate us from protesting in front of rural uh, candidates who usually are very conservative and racist at times. Um, toward the black community and, and even to the urban centers uh, issues, even though their entire tax base um, is supported by the urban centers. We pay for their electricity and their, we pay for their roads being paid. We pay for their water and we pay for their police officers and fire. They cannot sustain their, fin you know, their financially cannot sustain their own government. They rely on local aid. And so those two points you mentioned are critically important that you protest, but you also try to negotiate policies. You want to use that pressure that you're building with the community. That was an exchange with Shalani Hussein from the Council on American Islamic Relations in Minnesota, um, CARE Minnesota. Shalani uh, and others from CARE have been very involved in fighting systemic racism and have been central to many of the actions um, in the days after the police murder of George Floyd on the ground in Minneapolis. Um, if you look at the page of Council on American Islamic Relations, Minnesota, you can look back and see a live stream of the first protest um, to uh, support um, the family of George Floyd and to call out the murder by the police in Minneapolis. So I'd encourage you to, um, to look at that uh, page and to learn more about the Council on American Islamic Relations in Minneapolis, in Minnesota. Thank you so much to Jelani for joining Free City Radio. It is today, Tuesday, the 17th of August. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. I share a new podcast with you every Tuesday. 
and it's a pleasure to be with you and to share these voices. Uh, If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on Apple Podcasts. And uh, more generally, you can give us a rating. Thanks for being with us. Um, I'll be back next week with another conversation. And I'll go out with a piece of music uh, from an awesome artist, Gaika. Okay, I'll talk to you next week.
And now, Father, we give it all to you. We pray, God, for special dedication. We pray for special blessing. Nothing shall vandalize this tomb, oh God. It shall be protected and preserved by your mighty hand. Oh God, let nothing comes around to disturb the dead that lies here. 